Hey! Oh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> to, to go on. To go on. At no, some please. point, we should probably update the iTunes description of the podcast. Yeah, I'd say it's all about Hellbridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's a reasonable point. Uh, well, maybe, maybe by having it at the start of the episode, that'll remind us. Because, uh, hey, it's episode 20 of uh, We Have Such Films to Show You, the podcast that's not just about the Hellraiser film and hasn't been for, oh, several months now because uh, we ran out. Uh, <laughs> I'm Josh Millard. That's uh, Jakob Grinberg. What up? Uh, and uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, Jacob's Ladder today. Jacob's Ladder, 1990 film. Tim Robbins, Elizabeth Pena, uh, Danny Aiello, Louis Black, Macaulay, Thing yeah. Rames. This movie had a really like. I'm not. I don't want to say all star cast, but the cast was full of people. Yeah. That, that, I, that, there were there were people in this film who were people who we know who they are and 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 and, uh, and they were all good. I mean, Macaulay Culkin was in it, and he was fine as the ghost of a dead, you know, eight year old or whatever. Um, he was a Macaulay Culkin eight year old, but there wasn't a lot of clapping of hands to faces and hitting people with paint cans. So, you know, you, you gotta give that's, them credit for not shooting scenery. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a that would have a nice interlude. Somehow tie this in with uh, Home Alone. Uh, as as twin narratives of dying thoughts, um, we should say uh, this is another one of those movies that uh, hey yeah you probably should watch because it's a good movie and also it's got a huge uh, spoiler that we're totally going to talk about. So uh, you know yeah. what I want to say something about this. So this is the first time I've seen this movie, and you know it's it's one of those like um, Planet of the Apes or or Sixth Sense sort of things where. You know, like, if you're maybe five years... If it's past 1995 and you follow so certain things, this movie's going to be spoiled for you. Yeah, yeah. I, what the ending's going to be. And, but that being said, like, there was, there was a number of scenes where even if I didn't know what was going on, it would have been like, all right, yeah, you guys really... you really just, like, hammering that point in that, you know, I... I it's, it was sort of like it wasn't that big of a reveal. Like... If he was reading an incident at Elk Creek Bridge on the train in the like the, in the first scene, it would have been a slightly more on the nose. Yes, uh, and that's actually that, that's one of the things I want to talk about is like my memory of seeing this the first time versus seeing it now, um, going in really really wide eyed and also being a little bit distracted by actually knowing who all these various actors were too. It's, it was an interesting thing because every time like I was like, oh wait a second, that's oh wait a second, that's you know, I did a bunch of that uh, throughout, but. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I remember, I, I, I don't know that I remember being particularly mind-blown or anything when I saw it, but I definitely did not know the, the twist when I first saw this, however many years ago it was. I don't know exactly. It might have been, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and I remember sort of being like, this is weird, and I don't remember if I was like specifically thinking, yeah, this guy is totally having some, you know, near-death, you know, experience. Or, or, or what's going on. I, I may have even you know, wondered whether the notion was this was in fact some sort of notional afterlife experience or, or who knows what. Uh, and yeah, this time through it was like watching it knowing that you know, there's this no notion of you know, uh, dying thoughts and life flashing before your eyes and uh, struggling with the, the realization of death or whatever. It's, there's a lot of stuff. It's, uh, like you say, it's, it's pretty on the nose. It's pretty uh, unsubtle. 
you know, which, which I mean, can work just fine. Because, I mean, I think they're sort of going for the notion of that state of someone not wholly conscious of the fact that they are aware that they're dying, maybe. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot of a lot of things that are really like, oh, hey, hey. It's almost like a Hellraiser without the, the, the pause for laugh feeling whenever they say, like, go to hell, you know. Yeah. A lot less puns in this. Yes, yes. But a lot more overhead lights swinging. <laughs> there was there was a, there was a lot of uh, like like Doom Two era lighting tricks in this movie. It really uh, a lot of strobing and uh, cutting out. Have you ever seen um, The Machinist with Christian Bale? I have not. That's on my list. It's been for a while. It was on Netflix, then it went off Netflix. Mm-hmm. And... It's basically this movie. I think I get the impression a lot of movies are basically this movie. You know, it's, it, it's a. I, I made in my notes uh, when I was watching it, and I think I've said this about another film we watched at some point. But this movie was a much better Silent Hill movie than the actual Silent Hill movie, uh, and and apparently that makes sense because I guess this movie was a significant influence on the like you know design of Silent Hill which yeah yeah that's, I, I've heard that I've heard that quite a bit like it would, it wasn't it's not an accident that Silent Hill resembles Jacob's Ladder yeah they picked good source material because I mean it's, it's really it, it's a very it's it's a very good creep movie um, we after we watched it last night uh, uh, Angela was uh, looking up stuff and uh, noting some of the you know attested influences including you know Francis Bacon uh which kind of the, the not that like, one, but the other one for you <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, so the, the sort of like the, the look of the demon stuff and the the, the weird surreality of it uh, versus like apparently in the original script maybe it was envisioned more as like traditional sort of like Catholic demons. Like, yeah, you know, there's um apparently they had like conceived an entire like you know like cloven hoof pitchforky sort of things are on fire hell, and they decided not to go with it just because it would too easily be funny. Yeah, I gotta say, thank God, because I'm trying to imagine not laughing out loud at someone trying to make this movie, but with like you know a grinning red devil with a pitchfork. It's like really, really. So like this, this, this works. I mean, everything is weird and fucked up, and there's something obviously terribly wrong. But it's a little bit more flexible. It's a little bit more like this is weird and strange and you know uncanny rather than oh, all <laughs> old old what's his name Stitch? What what, what do you call yeah him? old Stitch. Stitch? Yeah, I was gonna say Snitch. I was like <laughs> wait no that's who gets Stitch. <laughs> um, yeah no I, I don't know I, I guess okay so I, I guess my top line thing is I enjoyed the movie. Uh, I enjoyed seeing it. I was actually really looking forward to seeing it the second time. I almost wish that I had like you know planned ahead to watch it ahead of time and then rewatch it and take notes because I was like I almost didn't want to be sitting around taking notes because um, I was looking forward to seeing it again because I remember I remember really enjoying it uh, the first time I saw it and I still really enjoyed it. I felt it was a little bit uh, more hammy maybe than I remembered. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I did watch it two times first because I'd never seen it before. Um, and then also because it, it's one of those movies where if you're not aware of like what imagery is going to be repeated or, you know, sort of pointed out, you might miss it on the first go. And yeah. I really did like watching it the second time. I noticed like, you know, like sort of like repeated motifs a lot more clear now that I wasn't actually, you know, trying to follow the plot or, yeah. or you know, figured, you know, trying to think of what's coming next. So, um, yeah. 
Um, oh, S.A.E. Patha Merkinson was in this. Ooh. That's uh, she played. Oh, what the hell is her name on Law and Order? Uh, the the chief, something with an A. Totally uh, spacing on it. I, um, I, I've watched very little Law and Order somehow. Oh, okay. Somehow, Anita, I mean, I, Anita okay. Van Buren. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So, did, I, here, here's a question that I have. Jacob's Jewish, right? Because he, you know, he's got he's got a he's got a Jewish name, Jacob Singer. His wife's name is Sarah. I mean, it's clearly like the Old Testament, you know, names thing is is a recurring theme. But you know, he's got he's he doesn't sort of like dig into the um, he he doesn't he he digs into like the the demon stuff like almost from like a historical or like an academic sort of point of view. You never see him like carrying his own Bible or his own crucifix. Um, and yeah, I, I got like a serious slight feeling that, that he's supposed to be Jewish, which is weird. Cause you know, you don't get that a lot in anything. Yeah. It, it's, it's an interesting point. Cause he really doesn't seem super tied into any of the religious, uh, you know, what, what I would think of as like sort of Christian hell iconography and, and, uh, Christian divine uh, iconography that shows up in the film. Cause we see, we see, you know, yeah, crucifixes and Bibles and whatnot, uh, but it's never his exactly. We don't hear him praying. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's a fair read. I, the, he could certainly be just sort of like a, a casual Jewish character in the film, or he could just be secular or just, you know, lapsed, lazy Christian or something. It, it, it doesn't really get down to it, but I think it's interesting to read that uh, that absence of what might be more common uh, uh, Christian uh, touchstones as uh, as an argument that yeah, a guy named Jacob Singer with a bunch of Old Testament names in his family might be a might be a Jewish guy. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. That's interesting. Um, oh, did you watch any of the deleted scenes? I did not. I watched this on Netflix. So okay, yeah. There's uh there's a bunch of the, they they cut out maybe like twenty minutes of this movie. Really? And no, actually, over twenty minutes because some of the deleted scenes aren't. Uh, they're they're supposed to. They're on like the DVD as part of like the making of featurette. There's like a couple of clips from some deleted scenes, and then there are just like some straight up deleted scenes that I really don't know why they deleted them because they actually. The, when I watched this movie, I was just like, you know, it's it's good, but like the second half slash third act, like the supernatural stuff kind of falls off, and the movie suffers because of it. Yeah, and it turns out that they that had sort of like peels away. Yeah, they had cut a bunch of that stuff, like including one really like crazy ass scene, um, because I, I think the audience like reacted too negatively or like that it was too intense or something. So they had cut it, and it's definitely to the detriment of the movie because like with those scenes in it, it would have been, um, you know, they're not really necessary for the plot. But then like half the movie isn't really necessary to the plot. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was there was there was a scene where he's. Uh, where what's his name? Uh, oh, the guy, the uh, the guy that designed the ladder. <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael. Michael. Yeah, there's a scene where Michael like takes him to his hotel room and cures him of the ladder, and the cure takes form of like this crazy tripping scene. Um, and then another scene where he's like directly after that, uh, where he's at the train station, where he's at a train station because he's like, oh, I'm cured now. I'm going to go to Chicago, and then it turns out he's not cured. Um, by way of a glory hole in the men's bathroom. Uh, and I guess, well, I guess we'll get into that if we go to the movie sequentially. And then all the way at the end, there's a scene where uh, Jesse appears for one last time and like shows her true form. 
um, right before. You know, actually, I can't really figure out where that fits in. Um, I've sort of got it, but yeah, it's just like right before the end where he ascends to heaven. Yes. <laughs> I don't do a terrible job of picking up on on uh, Paz's day. Uh, my rhythm's all off. Uh, it's, uh, I, I guess I was just you know, I was yearning for more. I, I wasn't done listening to your dulcet tones on the subject of deleted scenes. Um, yeah, no, I, I'd be curious to see that because I, I wonder, I mean, to some extent it could have been cut for time. I mean, the cut I watched was still an hour and 52 minutes, which is on, yeah. on the you know upper end of what a non, I don't know, crazy showboat uh, film uh, can get away with in, in theatrical release in 1990, I guess. Uh, you know, that was, that was one thing. I, I kind of, not that it makes a big difference, but I kind of was thinking this movie was more like, I don't know, 1985-ish or something. Yeah, no, so did I. I think it's just because they didn't have the budget. To, I mean, it takes place in 1975, um, but they... It, it, it was an independent production, and I and I think rather than like use the budget to make everybody look like real seventies, they just used it on the special effects and you know the stuff that people would enjoy seeing. And you know, for like the clothing and everything, I think they just, you know, they they gave people like seventies ish haircuts, but they they didn't really go out of their way to make you know the costuming and stuff seventies. And I mean, they shot it on location, so they clearly didn't have the money to dress fucking New York up like it's nineteen seventy something. They they can rent a couple of cars. But past that, you know, you can't. There's not a lot you can do. Um, so yeah, that I it, I was actually trying to figure out the chronology because the whole time I thought it was just taking place in like 1989 when it was shot because it it was just you know New York in 1989. Um, but then you know there's some scenes like you know the uh, the the girls that are singing to him are clearly you know that was like the most like 70s sort of dress uh, wardrobe uh, decision. Because um, I mean other than that, you know what's everybody wearing? Like there's a scene where they're wearing where everybody's like wearing cheap suits, which is, you know, cheap suits are cheap suits. There's, uh, and the rest of the time he's either like in his mailman uniform or, um, or in his like, you know, just jeans and like a uh, pair of chucks and a white t-shirt and his military yeah. coat. Which is not going to give you a whole lot to, uh, latch on to chronology wise. Oh, yeah. jeans, jeans and a coat. Huh? Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, Oh, what the hell was I going to say? See, the, the rhythm, the rhythm's all gone. I don't know. Actually, I, I really like that. It was uh, the, the, the sort of like the New York City that they featured in this is the New York City that I thought I would be growing up in when I had like just <laughs> moved here as a kid, which is, I mean, basically like maybe a year or so from when they shot this. So that like the the just like the the sort of like the people in this and everything is that that's sort of the, what I thought I would be growing up into, but it it changed very very much uh, very quickly right after that. So this is it's sort of like a time capsule of uh, you know kind of like early episodes of Law and Order basically of like a, it's a time capsule of New York before Giuliani you know uh, I'm making air quotes as I say cleaned it up. <laughs> I, you know, something that I couldn't stop thinking of uh, at certain moments in this film uh, was another New York City film, and and this is a this is a thing where uh, I, uh, you know, I I I went to New York for the first time a few years ago. So you know, New York has always been in movies this sort of like you know thing that's in movies and and, mm-hmm. and and things about it that struck me as weird. You know, they struck me as weird partly because I'd never seen them. You know and and it's like it's little things like the the the, the roof on top of an apartment building uh, is not a thing that I was accustomed to as a kid. I mean, I grew up in like you know a residential part of Portland, you know, so I'm used to single family homes. But even 
you know, if I'd been to someone's apartment, we, we never got on the roof because in Portland, you know, it's not super common that uh, there's just general roof access. Yeah, I remember being delighted when we were renting a, a practice room uh, years ago in a band I was in, in a building downtown, and we actually had roof access. We could go up on top of that roof, and that was like maybe the first time I'd ever been up on top of sort of like uh, just a ho-hum roof of some building uh, in a non-eventful fashion. And so, and so, like, New York, there's always movies, you know, people, people are up on the roof, you know. I mean, think of classics like, uh, you know, The Room. Um, but, uh, but, but, but I was going to say, so, but, but battery, <laughs> Battery's Not Included. Battery's Not Included. Uh, another film with Elizabeth Pena. Uh, another film where you have stuff happening up on a roof, like the conversation that the War Buddies all have in this uh, after the funeral for the, the guy who blew up. Um, and it's just, I, I, I sort of realized just then, I really put it together, it's like, oh, this is really, this is, this is specifically, yeah, that, that sort of one of those New York storytelling things, like, you know, in, in movies, in, in, in comics, you know, Hawkeye, the new Hawkeye yeah. comic series, he's always up having barbecues on top of the roof of the building lives in, and it's like, oh, it's, it, somehow it finally clicked together that all these movies, because a lot of movies I saw as a kid that would have had, like, New York, and maybe would have had people on, on roof in an apartment building, you know, it's not like I was watching this thinking, "Oh, this is New York." You know, as a kid, I was just like, "Oh, it's a movie." You know, I didn't, right. I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't care that it was in New York, so I never really like you know, even did the accounting to keep track of that. Yeah, no, like from like the the the, the first scene, um, I was just like, where he's like, "Do we pass Bergen Street?" I'm like, "Oh wow, somebody did their research." <laughs> um, and yeah, especially because the woman that he's asking is just so very clearly like one of those like pissed off, angry Eastern European women that are everywhere in my neighborhood. Um, yeah, and then all all like the locations were were were, were sort of consistent. You know, there's uh, the scenes take place in mostly in just like one generally specific area or like a couple of neighborhoods around Brooklyn, but like the places that he the, where he is and the places that he asks for and like places where he tells people are all you know actual real places like you know Nostrand Avenue. That's that's where I work, um, and and so on. Um, so yeah, I actually I, I really like that. Although apparently the uh, the subway scene was shot in because there's a Bergen Street station and I was I spend a lot of time around that station or I have because that that neighborhood you know I hang out there a bunch and it was also where I transfer trains to go back and forth from high school um, and apparently it's got a lower level that's abandoned and that's where they shot that. Ah. Um, yeah. I was gonna. I, I actually, I had, I had a subway question there specifically. Like in the opening, when he falls asleep on the subway, he gets up, he gets off uh, at Bergen Street Station, and then he realizes he finds out that the it's just locked where he got off. Now, how the hell, really? Like, was was that and is that a thing where you can just end up stuck inside, locked in the station because the train's um, still stopping there, even though it's locked, or is that supposed to be like absolutely weird? It's Okay, so, I mean, they do lock, they'll, you know, if a train station will have, like, there'll be exits at both sides on both sides of the train, so it'll maybe have, like, four separate street entrances, and there's times when they'll lock, like, two of them, and you go, like, ah, oh, fuck, now I gotta go to the other one, but, you know, they'll, I, I've never been in a situation where they have, like, locked all four, or where I couldn't cross over to the other side and, like, get out from there, so it was... It was definitely weird. Um, and, I mean, he got out. Uh, I don't remember. They, they don't actually make it clear how he got out, because, like, after he sort of dives away from the train, he's he's above ground and, like, going back home already. Well, yeah, presumably he, he um, finished his transit across the tracks yeah. after that. 
but yeah, like it, it's 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 realistic. If you get on the train, you know, you go up to the to the exit and it's locked. But there's usually like signs and stuff, or like you know, they'll they'll pull up put up tape so you'll know. But um, yeah, you know, sometimes you'll have to just go to the other end of the station, get out there. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, like, that's, there's no there's no reason for you to be going down into the tracks. That I have no idea why he was doing that. Yeah. That, that that part was kind of weird. Because, I mean, maybe he was trying to cross over to the other side, but that station, you can cross over to the other side without having to go across the tracks. But that's, that's a movie, so... Yeah, well, and that's, that's what I was trying to gauge. Because, like, you know, like, either either it's... Uh, his reaction to it being locked was very blasé. I mean, he was annoyed. He was like, you gotta be kidding me, or whatever. But uh, it wasn't like, holy fuck, you know. And yet, if he knew he would need to cross the tracks... Uh, the hard way, you think it would be a little bit more, you know, taken. So yeah, it, it's hard. Yeah, to, no, it's I mean, hard if that happens, that. you just wait for the next train and you get off at the next station, which yeah. is you know, walking like the next station is pretty close to that one. So yeah, like that, it 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 seemed like a means to an end to get him onto the train tracks, and it yeah. made a lot of sense. But I don't think they were they were looking for it to to be totally like co you know coherent to the New York City experience people are just like oh whatever it's a fucking movie there's no reason for him to be tracks on the tracks at any point so yeah. you know if he's on there he's on there it's and, and yeah yeah I agree I feel like they just needed to set up let's have this train situation and the scare of trying to avoid the train the sort of existential stare of, uh, of not hitting the third rail I guess which at one point he, he gently taps a rail with his feet as if to say hmm I wonder if this is the electrified rail that will kill me if I step on it wouldn't you just not step on it? I, 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 I don't know. Well, no, he hops over the third rail. Well, like, well uh, yeah, but he taps yeah. another rail before, like, like he, he, he very pointedly taps a rail with his shoe as in, as if testing it. Uh, and there's another rail that he steps over. And maybe, maybe it's just obvious that the other rail, rail is the third rail and this one's a non-issue. But if it's a non-issue, why would you tap it? Uh, if it's not a non-issue, why would you tap? Yeah, I, I just didn't know exactly, uh, <laughs> yeah, I totally missed there, him kicking you know? that because I just I, I just had noticed him hop over the because the third rail is like it, it's it's pretty obvious they there's like guards on it and stuff you 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 can't you shouldn't be able to I mean maybe in like that bottom one they hadn't installed that yet but you shouldn't be able to step down onto the third rail there, there's there there's a thing there that you this that you can't do that in most lines I don't know like because because there's different lines that were built by the different companies before they all merged together. So um, yeah, but yeah, I'm not sure why he why he kicked it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's been subway talk. Uh, <laughs> there's the weird little wave from a vague figure at the back of the passing train after he doesn't get hit by it. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but just like just as the train receded at the back of the car, there was like you couldn't even really make out a face as far as you can tell. But it oh, yeah, no, like I, don't, I don't think it had a face. Yeah. I think and it was they, one of those. Yeah, I yeah, wrote. They, what, they, what did I write? Yeah, it was like one of the. Uh, it reminded me of um, those uh, those dudes on Buffy, the uh, the silence dudes on Buffy, or the uh, oh, those yeah. aliens that made you forget them on Doctor Who or yeah. Slenderman. A little bit of Slenderman. Sure. Too. Yeah. Sort of just the same like creepy elongated thing in a suit, but a little bit friendly, you know. Yeah. You know, just waiting. Like, Hello. <laughs> Glad you didn't die, or did you? Um, you totally do. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I, I feel like, for me, it's tricky. I like this movie. Like, I like this movie, I, I, and I, I knew the twist going in, I still liked it watching it again. Um, and I've been a loud proponent of how much It Was All Just a Dream sucks as a storytelling device. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and so I feel like to some extent I'm I'm trying to figure out how I'm defining my turns that I don't really have to complain about this movie. I think I think part of the thing with this movie is it's not an inconsequential. It's all just a dream thing where oh that was all weird, but now everything's okay because I'm awake, uh, which is right. like the fucking worst. And it's it's also not a, it's all just a dream or is it uh, like with the uh, phantasm. Um, I got an email from someone, I don't know if I mentioned this, uh, but I got an email from someone, uh, uh, MFI, I think, uh, sharing their thoughts and sort of defending the film in terms of the incoherence of their narrative versus the it's all just a dream thing where at the end the kid wakes up and uh, Reggie, the bald ice cream man, is still there. And, and the explanation there is that, okay, well, Jody, the older brother, had in fact died and this was the kid trying to cope with that and Reggie saying hey no it's okay he's had a bad dream because you know you, it's dealing with Jody hey let's go on a road trip um, that that was all totally you know coherent and that all the weird stuff in the movie was weird because it was a kid having a sort of like you know coping nightmare about his uh, brother dying which right. you know I, I can buy all that and I, I think we sort of talked uh, a little bit about that uh, at the time but my complaint uh, there was that as much as I can try and get behind that explanation, um, any other questions of how much they succeeded actually declaring that intent with what they made in the film there aside, they then have the thing grab him through the mirror or the closet or whatever, which completely fucks that it was actually, in fact, just the fantastical nightmare of a kid coping with loss. Back into, oh no, actually, there's really monsters. You know, and, and it completely fucks it. Like, at that point, you can't say, oh, but it was a, you know, trees on coping. It's like, no, we could use one. I always assumed that was just like a like a one last scare sort of thing where at that point it might as well be the credits as far as like the canon of the film goes where it's just like let's let's just give them one more thing. Yeah, but that's so fucking dumb. That's the thing. It that's, is. And that's, it, it yeah. frustrates me because if that really is the thing, they should have just done it as like a a, a, a second wake up, like have them wake up again or something, you know, if you really have to do that bullshit extra scare. Otherwise, you're just fucking up your own narrative if your narrative is actually defensible on those terms, so... I guess the fact that Jacob didn't pop up from his army cart and be like, wow, that was a weird dream makes me more okay with it in this case. But also I think I just like the fact that this, I don't know, this seemed to be embracing the, the weird deterioration of the mind uh, in its sort of narrative and editing choices. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I felt it, it's like a personal elephant in the room for me. I feel like I need to acknowledge that as much as I've complained about it, clearly I'm not 100% against that as a narrative device. It's uh, like this. Yeah, I mean, it sort of it sort of works in this because um, you know a bunch of the film was is based on the uh, what do you call it the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead, Tibetan. Tibetan? I, I don't know how to pronounce the, those things that are from Tibet. I, I don't I, know I, how I, you pronounce that word. I, I, I pronounce it Tibetan. It's the Tibetan. Tibetan. Oh yeah, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where the soul has to go through like a uh, a journey. Um, like, you know, after death, the soul has to go through, like, a, a trials and a journey to get from, like, point A to point B. And, you know, it has to be, uh, it has to be cleansed and stuff. And so it's not, it, it's not an inconsequential, it was all a dream, because, like, while the things that you see aren't exactly happening to Jacob, the things that he's going through and, like, the emotions that he's going through are happening to his soul, basically. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it, it's... The, the the events of the movie didn't take 
place in uh, in the world, but they definitely took place in his head, and they definitely had an effect on him that that had a you know effect on what happened to his soul. Because in you know in the in the mythology of this movie, that's that's a thing that exists, and that's you know it can go at a certain place or at a certain other place or travel from one to the other. Now, do, you, um, do you feel like the movie ever makes that explicit? Because I mean, I, I think that's I think that's a really good read on the the, the structure of the idea, and you know. I, I think when Louis telling him about uh, Eckhart, I, I think that's the point where they make it explicit. And, and, uh, and yeah, he, they, they, the, the fact that they go back and repeat a bit of Louis' lines right at the end of the film, <laughs> yeah, definitely underscores the idea that if anything is being endorsed by the film as the the metaphysics of the film, then it may be that. Um, which again, I mean, it, it's an interesting contrast between. Uh, traditional sort of uh, Christian iconography that we still get sort of toyed with uh, in this film, even if it's not literally, you know, red devil with a pitchfork. Right. Um, you know, we get a lot of that at a surface level. You know, things are talked about in terms of demons and, and hell, you know, are the, the common touch points. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's, I, I, it's there's kinda, actually, there, there's a deleted scene all the way at the end. Um, where yeah, well, you know, he's uh, he's uh, he, he goes back to his house and he sees that his family's not there, and then everything gets sort of like draped in blue light, and then you know he gets up and he sees Gabe and everything's draped in white light, and he goes up to heaven. So there's a scene that takes between that when uh, Jesse just sort of comes out of the shadows, and um, she's wearing like you know a long coat, and and she's just like hello Jake, and she's he's like oh where did you come from? Where's my family? And then she like walks across the room, and then she just vanishes like boop vanish and then she reappears and there's this like crazy scene and then she starts transforming into like that demon like the de- sort of like the same demon that he pictured like you know screwing her on the dance floor during the party um and then you see like shots of like you know the wings and like the the, the viscera and stuff um and then it's intercut with scenes of like the, the the sort of like the shaky head thing where you see uh you see like the the shaky head figure with like the black uh like executioner's hood almost but with no eyes yeah um, over it and so it's intercut with that, and you know, there's, you know, and Jake's freaking out, and then, um, and then, and then you see him just like sort of slowly like reach toward the hood, of uh, the head that's shaking, and he pulls it off, and he's staring back at himself, and it's Jake, but he's shirtless and not wearing any glasses, and then there's just like they both just sort of like make eye contact, and the Jake that pulls the the, the hood off, there's almost like a look of relief on his face. And then I think is the comes the scene where uh, Gabe walks him up the stairs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that was the uh, that, that 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 was the other thing where um, you know it, it becomes it becomes even more explicit that he's not like he's not being like tortured by demons because he's in hell, but he's actually just going through a a journey with like a concrete goal and endpoint. Yeah, in a sense, he's torturing himself. Could be the right because he like, can't. Yeah, this is, yeah, his attachment yeah, to worldly things. And... Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so I think, and that, that's a deleted scene, and I, I can see why it was deleted, but yeah, it makes it even clearer, like, that what he's going through isn't, um, isn't meant to be, you know, like the, the, the pitchforks and cloven hoofs conception of hell yeah. uh, from, like, that eschatology. Which is really interesting because, I mean, again, you know, it's like how much of this is the intended read of the screenwriter and how much of this is that being somewhat subverted by the filmmaker, the, the, the director, um, who it seems like is like specifically responsible for a great deal of the specific details of how this ended up, you know, looking 
I know that the director and the screenwriter were at odds as far as the film goes. Yeah. Um, Where, you know, the the screenwriter wanted to be, like, more clearly, like, biblical and more, like, you know, more just, like, you know, Old Testament-y and and, and intense. And the director wanted to go for, like, more of a subtle psychological thing. So I think there's, like, that. that's the conflict between those two things is can cause the... uh, the confusion um, of you know what the hell is actually happening to him and why, and not in like the sort of like it's a psychological horror movie way, and of course there's going to be confusion, but like in a way that actually interferes with being able to comprehend and therefore actually enjoy the movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that 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 actually that that part wasn't. Uh, I, I that that part could have been clear for me. Um, but considering how like on the nose they made all the other stuff, I'm not sure if they could have done a good job without totally, you know, just sort of like having him come up to like a blackboard where it's written "You're on a journey" or, or just some shit. Well, like yeah, that. And, and, and I mean, uh, ultimately, I'm really okay with the way it played out because I like the fact that the film has this odd incoherence to it. I like that it feels disjointed and that you know there's these these sort of parallel narratives going on. I feel like it really works with the theme of the book. Because, I mean, I, I, I tend to look at this uh, uh, through basically a secular lens. You know, I mean, I can, I can sort of look at, like, a Catholic horror film as sort of a fanboy of, of the notion of, you know, Catholic horror or whatnot, but, uh, you know, I, I don't really retain any uh, sense of, you know, my, my mostly Catholic upbringing as something that's personally important to me. Like, I'm very much you know, just a, a, a really skeptical atheist type uh, person in terms of my, my view of the metaphysics of the universe and whatnot. You know, I expect, you know, we live and then we die, and that's it's all kind of meaningless, and uh, you want to find meaning in your life itself. You know, it's not about uh, what happens to you after you die, because yeah, my personal impression is uh, nothing happens. You turn into poop. Um, so so I'm, I'm watching this, and, and I, I'm sort of... I'm more interested in its, you know, is, as far as I'm going to relate to the idea of the experience, I'm, I'm looking at more like the idea of, you know, operating in the process of dying than necessarily subscribing to the notion of the soul's journey as much as I can get behind, you know, looking at that narratively and, you know, thinking about what they're trying to say philosophically with it. Right. Um, so taking from that really, really uh, uh, death is a, you know, endpoint perspective, you know, reading the film also as basically the things going on in a brain as it loses uh, its needed oxygen and starts going into sort of like, you know, a, a dream state as it shuts down, there's a lot of interesting stuff to read into it too. Like, like the, the fact that we've got these different sort of competing but workable themes of various, you know, existential, you know, metaphysical philosophies on death I think it works pretty well if you take this guy as, you know, he's a guy, he's a professor and master of arts, he's a, he's a reader, he's, uh, like you say, when he's looking in the experience through the, uh, he's looking through the books on, like, demonology and witchcraft and so on, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's, he's, he's a guy who is, has read, he's a guy who has access to a lot of these different sort of, like, you know, uh, cultural ideas in him, in his brain, Right. Uh, and his brain is sort of like paging through some of that stuff in the way that, you know, we sort of page through memories and knowledge, you know, in dreams, uh, the brain apparently trying to sort of string together some sort of coherent narrative out of even the oddest dream. Um, so the idea that, like, you know, in a sense, the film can be seen as his brain trying to make sense of itself as it breaks apart, you know, I think also works well. And that works well with, the co- you know, like the lack of coherence at times and the sort of jumping from narrative track to narrative track and the flashbacks right. and 
and so on. Yeah, it's just trying to, you know, figure, just trying to come to some coherent sense of an ending based on everything that he knows and everything that he's experienced. It's just trying to put something together that he can actually go off into that good night or whatnot. Yeah. Um, although he, he is responsible for the song Lady Marmalade, apparently, because that was not recorded until after he technically dies. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a dying vision yeah, that's, that's the actual okay here's a new theory of the metaphysical universe uh, souls exist in some sense but only as uh, late motifs of songs that will eventually be recorded by people who interact with those as one might interact with a passing fart like you, you, you smell something and then a song comes out you know? and so what happened is Jacob Singer died his 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 song soul escaped from his body at the moment of death, floated on the wind from Vietnam uh, over the United States, and then uh, and then got into the the head of whoever wrote Lady Marmalade, and, and it's actually <laughs> yeah, it's a restatement of his soul. Or maybe that's like maybe there is an afterlife, and and all all ghosts all the ghosts of Jobs, and and that's his job is to inspire the guy who wrote or the woman who wrote uh, Lady Marmalade uh, with with her for Labelle, and that 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 was his ghost job. And now, you know, how many songs across time is Jake's ghost inspired? I guess do one a year. Sometimes it's a couple extras, but you know, one a year at least. <laughs> he's, like, he's had a couple low years. Uh, he. Uh, he was responsible for who let the dogs out. It was supposed to be sarcastic, but uh, you know it's hard to communicate from the afterlife, so it just turned into a hit instead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, okay. So the, uh, part of everything is, is like uh, I, I feel like uh, the idea of some of the things when he's in the post office right at the beginning, he sees uh, a couple ads in, uh, up in the runners on the subway car. There's something about you know. New York City and something about you know hell regarding yeah. drug addiction, both of which work well as sort of like a literally sort of signposting your your sense of where you are. Because like one of the things about this is if we accept this uh, as something that's happening to him as a result of some drug treatment that he was uh, aware of in some sense, like like if you take the idea that the opening of the film is more or less. Uh, accurate up until the shit starts going down that it's a bunch of guys sitting around in Vietnam uh, essentially bored and waiting for something to happen and talking and they're all friends and passing around a joint you know he could have been aware that someone had been like hey what's going on with this you know weird joint essentially uh, even though I don't think we ever see him smoke it but it doesn't need to because if, right. they, if they've been dosed in their food and it's just sort of yeah. coming on coincidentally that he could have in theory internalized the notion that someone was worried about like a, a laced joint and internalized from that the idea of some sort of drug situation and, and, and retained that and thus confabulated all of this uh, details about the conspiracy and whatnot in his dying experience um, or you could just argue that you know it's you know some sort of magical metaphysical awareness of the nature of his situation I don't know I mean no, I mean with with the drug thing. There's there's another deleted scene that happens. Um, you know when he talks to when he talks to Michael in like the alleyway. Michael explains that you know he was like an acid chef and or an acid uh, chemist, I guess. And then he got recruited by the government to make you know some sort of chemical uh, weapon. And then so that 
instead of that scene just ending, what happens is that uh, Michael takes him back to his hotel room, and he's just like, I came up with an antidote, but I've never been able to test it. And the antidote is, you know, it, he, it's like, it's a little uh, droplet thing, you know, it's a, with, with the squeezy pipette thing. And yeah. he puts some of his tongue, oh, like squirts it basically down his throat, like, like you wouldn't do with LSD, but, you know, close enough. The guy's an expert, um, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, he starts having this, like, crazy hallucination where, you know, the ceiling starts cracking and blood is dripping from it. And, you know, it's dripping all over this light bulb that's hanging there with, you know, that recurring, like, hanging light bulb imagery throughout the movie. Um, and then, you know, the ceiling basically, like, gets ripped open and there's, like, some sort of, like, hideous demon in there as well. Um, but one of the things that he sees during that is, like, Michael just, like, holding him down by the throat and just, like, jamming this pipette into his mouth, um, you know, yelling at him. So I think the... Uh, you know the the whole thing. Uh, he definitely, at least with that scene, you get you definitely get the idea that he internalized that you know he was poisoned with drugs by the government basically. Yeah. So like the and apparently like according to IMDb, all of the advertisements on the subway that he passes are anti-drug advertisements. So um, you know I'm not sure how accurate that is, but one of them definitely says ecstasy in big old words. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I mean big old letters rather. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can definitely see it as him, like the the whole drug thing as as his his body just like sort of or his brain rather, you know, sort of putting the blame where it actually belongs. Yeah. Um, well, and and there's another there's another angle on this too. Instead of him having to internalize it before the shit went down, uh, you, you mentioned the recurring hanging light imagery, and there's a number of things we could make the argument that most of the outside world context stuff that comes into his apparently dying vision um, mm. is maybe just table talk uh, from the guys attending to him in the, in the uh, on the cot in the military uh, tent. Right, especially because he's just constantly in this movie about three, four, maybe even five times he ends up like prone on his back unable to move, staring dead up into some light. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's that there's the there's when he eventually has the revelatory more complete flashback of being bayoneted and because uh, early in the film, we see him get bayoneted mm-hmm. during a uh, flashback to the crazy shit going down. But he, he, we get a reaction shot from him, but we don't see who had it. But the thing is, you know, you know what I noticed about that reaction shot? And I noticed it, like, even from the very beginning, is that there's a look of recognition on his face. There's, like, an explicit look of, like, confused recognition. Yeah, it's, and it's not, not like, in, him, like, you killed me sort of way, but in, like, you killed me sort of way. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's not like, oh, man, where'd this guy with a bayonet come from? It's like... Yeah. You, why you? Yeah. And, and so eventually we get the the cross shot to the guy holding the bayonet, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a guy who I didn't recognize in the scene. Like he could have been somebody from the unit, but it didn't yeah. jump out at me. And then at the end, we get a shot of the attending doctor taking his lack of pulse, and that's mm-hmm. the guy. Uh, and so again, another element coming in from oh, you that's know, the guy that bayoneted him. Yeah, yeah, I'm oh, pretty sure I didn't it is. Notice that. So, so all of a sudden you've got a, a guy over him during a moment of trauma. The bayoneting itself um, could even be metaphorical for uh, some of the surgical stuff they may have tried to do to, to keep him from dying from, I guess, an actual bayonet wound. It, it's a little bit tricky because like, the bayonet scene, is it a memory? Is it a confabulation? Is it a combination of the two? Because he presumably did not actually get bayoneted by a crazed guy who was also the doctor doing the surgery on him after he got into uh, that crazy situation. So, so yeah, like, like all the information just coming in from maybe them talking about the drugs, maybe them talking about these things, 
while they were trying to to, to save his life uh, as he was basically you know unconscious. That, that that'd be another reasonable way to explain yeah. it from the uh, where is this information coming from? Yeah, and I mean during the I mean it's a, that 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 sort of thing becomes a little obvious during the ice bath scene where uh, Jesse keeps yelling out, "Don't you die on me?" Which is really just sort of a weird <laughs> thing to, to yell at somebody who's, you know, not even, he's really sick, but, you know, he, it's it's sort of like a very strange thing to yell from her perspective, but yeah, it's totally But if you're a, totally a trauma doctor, then yeah, yeah, it's classic medical drama uh, thing to shout, so... Also, that doctor, his doctor, um, like Doctor First, the one that lives in his apartment building, the one that shows up, that's Lewis Black. Yeah, I, 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 I thought he looked like familiar in the scene, but I didn't really think about it because like there was other stuff going on. I was like, okay, and then yeah, I saw Lewis Black in the credits. Like, holy shit, that was in fact Lewis Black. He's lucky. I'm also I, I can't find a credit for this, but the other doctor, the one that uh, after he gets you know like thrown out of the car and mugged by Santa. The other doctor that, like, you know, uh, Dr. Stewart, the one who's just, like, who talks to him, I'm 99% sure that's Michael Imperioli from, uh, you know, Goodfellas and The Sopranos, played Christopher on The Sopranos. I'm, like, 95% sure it's him, and there's some discussion online about it, but he's not credited, and some people agree and some people don't, but, I mean, that unibrow. (laughs) I I liked how, like, the the, the goons who, uh, who... Grabbed him and stuck in the car. That seemed very mafia goony. Uh, yeah, despite actually, being I, apparently, you know, it seemed like it was it was supposed to be sort of government conspiracy operatives. Yeah. Uh, but like, I guess they just say, "Hey, can you help us out? We're a little strapped. We don't have any G-men. Can you go goon this guy a little bit? You know, tell yeah, him the government sent you." I actually, that that, that sort of t- like that that sort of made the conspiracy. Like, I didn't like the entire conspiracy angle. I thought it was really they didn't do a lot with it, and the stuff they did do with it was just so cliche that it wasn't like particularly entertaining. But yeah, it was just like, why? Why are, are, are is the is the mob doing the milit? Is like the government's enforcement now? Don't they have their own guys for that that are better than the mob? Because uh, they're trained. But yeah, it was. Um, but uh, that was actually another piece of recurring imagery. The uh, like the sort of like the uh, the serpentining or well, no, what do you call it when a car does it? Fishtailing. The fishtailing car, because you know when when he's uh, when he's almost run over at the beginning, when Michael warns him, and then when the car uh, picks him up, and he's like kicking the driver, and that all also goes back to like that car that kills uh, Gabe. Yeah, that that was also like you know presumably doing that same thing. So I think I, I though those things are too. They're not. I mean, nothing in this movie is actually happening, but those things are, like, specifically, like, just his brain making sense of, like, a horribly traumatic event by constantly reliving it as a different sort of horribly traumatic event. Oh, and the train bearing down on him, too. You know, he's constantly, like, in, in the, either in the path of, like, a moving vehicle or, you know, inside of a moving vehicle that's hitting other things. So that's just, you know, his, and his brain just sort of, like, processing that, that, that just memory. Yeah. And then dealing with it, and then in a way, sort of overcoming it, because he does escape from that thing, even though it it, it injures him pretty badly. And I, I then there's a certain uh, you know there's a certain thing to it that you know Santa Claus steals his ID, and you know, he has he has no identity. You know he's 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 letting go of his identity basically. Right, so see, I like that. Uh, on the same front, there's 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 a number of interactions with photos in the film mm-hmm. um, that I think is really interesting in the idea of. Yeah, photo as metaphor for memory, accessing a photo as, you know, uh, a notion of, of, of trying to access or, or, or cling to actual memories. Uh, the idea of Jezebel burning his photos, 
which is something we see off screen, you know, or, or we see out of his view. Um, but the idea, yeah, that she she burns a bunch of the photos that uh, one of his kids brought by late in the film when he's at his uh, ex-wife and, and son's apartment. Uh, he's sitting there looking at photos. You know, it, it's hard not to read that as a really explicit sort of, again, yeah, the idea of uh, identity and reflection and, 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 and memory and, and dwelling on. Also, we, I'd just like to make a point. We no longer have pits of fire at the bottom of our apartment buildings. <laughs> they took those out. That was another one of my questions. It's like, just toss it into the boiler? Is that the idea? Is it, no, no, no. There's, yeah, even, so in apartment buildings, there's, there's a trash chute. But in, you know, these days when we, you know, when we're uh, aware enough of fire safety to not have, again, pits of fire at the basement... Um, it just goes to like a big dumpster and then, you know, all the stuff in the dumpster gets thrown out. But, you know, back in the day, it was an incinerator and like all of my trash shoots in our, in our building there, cause you know, they're made of metal and like the thing on them is stamped in metal. So it just says incinerator on it. So yeah, that would, that was totally a thing. Um, I, I don't know when they took them out. I did. 19, I mean, 1975. All right. 1990s. I think, I, I, I think they, I think they took them out to celebrate the release of Lady Marmalade. <laughs> You're like, okay, that's it. This song is so hot, we don't even need incineration anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's just, there's just a, just like a gramophone, like playing it on repeat at the base, in the basement of every apartment building, and it just burns up everything around it. Yep. But it's, it's a, it's a Beyonce song now. They, they, they replaced it. They, they replace it every once in a while. Not the gramophone, just the record. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's you know it was really strange that like in in sort of like the symbolic way about like Jesse throwing out the photos and stuff it it makes sense but if you just like from a pure character level she is just so fucking weird um, because she's clearly like she clearly has empathy for him you know like she no matter how pissed off she is at him she still like you know gets all the neighbors out to help save him and you know like calls the doctor immediately you know regard she's with him regardless of how pissed off at him she is with really good reason to be pissed off at him because he's sort of like you know a shitty boyfriend but you know that PTSD does that uh, but the thing is like. Uh, at one point, you know, she throws out the photo because she says she doesn't like things that make him upset, which is just like a really just like sort of a childish, like emotional reaction to something. And the other one is just like where I, uh, when she wakes up from the episode, she's like, you know, you were calling to your wife and your kids, even the dead one. And then he's just sort of <laughs> that, was a, at that. <laughs> that, that was a that was kind of a dick line. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it's one of those things where certainly within the narrative of the film, it wasn't the weirdest thing. And I could buy the idea of her being sort of like, you know, both in love with him and also having difficulty coping uh, with the details of, of their relationship with him being uh, as sort of like odd and, and, and off kilter as he seems to be for much of the film. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, it could just be like you know a sign of a relationship that you know wasn't actually going to last in the long run if it wasn't the uh, dying fantasy of a you know drugged military experiment subject. But uh, no, I, I, Macaulay Culkin is thirty three. Yeah, that's weird. Isn't that weird? Yep. It's uh... a. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, gosh, what was, I, I was going to say also, like, you take the burning of the photos, it seems like sort of like an impulsive dick move and, and sort of maybe a mean thing, you know, working with the idea that she's actually, you know. But then again, uh, if we go with the philosophy of the demons are actually just trying to help you, then in a sense she's trying to help him let go of this, 
memories. So thematically, it sort of works right. both ways. Uh, I did want to notice that the post office, there's a brief shot, like when he's going to uh, visit Jez and tell, him, tell her she's, he's taken off. Uh, there's a brief shot uh, of just like background movement with the people working there, where the mail worker is dragging along a large bag of, of mail, presumably. Uh, but it does look a skosh like a body bag, which I thought was an interesting thing. Yeah. Like, it's like, whether intentional or incidental, it's kind of hard to say because it really is this tiny little thing. But at the same time, in this film with so much intentionally weird stuff, it's hard not to read like maybe they were trying to evoke a little bit of that as well. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything in particular to say about Louis the Chiropractic Angel? I. What is up with that? It, it would, I mean, I... I've got suspicion that either the director or the screenwriter just like had a really good experience with a chiropractor, and he was just like, "This has to be in my movie. This ad, there's no way I can have this movie without a chiropractor in it," because you know it's. I've got conflicting thoughts about chiropractic as a as as a as a you know medical profession. Um, but just like even with that, apparently there's this piece of trivia on IMDb that I can only assume was inserted by a chiropractor, where it was just where they mentioned that like uh, Danny Aiello um, had a. Uh, you know, he he like studied under an actual chiropractor to make those scenes as realistic as possible. And people still come up to the director of this movie to tell oh, chiropractors still come up to the director of this movie to tell him how much they appreciate chiropractic being you know represented in a in a realistic way. And it was just like, well, that's nice, but on the other hand, you know, this dude's crazy chiropractor abducts him out of a hospital to you know treat him in his like basement. Yeah. Uh, so that that was. How did he even get out of the hospital? That was one of those things because you even hear one of the nurses say it's like we were just like you know somebody stop. It's like ah don't worry they'll get him downstairs and they clearly don't. Yeah, it's like it can't be that easy to you know steal somebody out of a hospital. Well, if you got Moxie, yeah, yeah. I love I love the line where he's like you know uh, he's pushing along in the wheelchair. He's like watch your toes and then just bangs open some swinging (laughs) doors with presumably to feed the the wheelchair. Yeah, that nice touch. I um. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I cannot figure out what the hell was going on with that character, or why those scenes were taking place outside of you know, there's, you know, it's it's a reason for him to be, uh, to be on his back and like in, you know, ostensibly in pain from like treatment because it, you know, they're all sort of like calls back to him being in that helicopter, like having his guts sewn back in. Um, and then, and then you know, like the 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 Meister Eckhart thing makes sense, but it was just, it's, it, it, it felt like they were going for something to be really on the nose and missed, and now it's just pointing at something, and I don't know what it's pointing at. Yeah. So yeah, but I mean, I like Danny Aiello. He reminds me of like half my high school teachers. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's, what 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 did you think was up with that? I, yeah, I, I, I think I think the tying it into the uh, the physical experience he's going through and the, and the proneness works well for that. The character specifically, it's a little bit weird. I mean, I I think it was a good excuse to have some uh, some sort of like sense memory type stuff. The, the fact that they tie in some of the chiropractic stuff to uh, him having the flashbacks. Um, and the idea that maybe we're associating in both directions, you know, physical trauma with, you know, this notion of, of memory. Um, that, that all worked in a, a fuzzy enough sort of way. It was a good excuse to do something that looked a little bit, uh, you know, disconcerting and like, you know, you know yeah. 
popping bones and whatnot. And at one point when he adjusts his neck, it, you know, it, it's very, you know, evocative of, you know, the notion of someone snapping someone's neck. Right. You know, and things like that. You know, it's a, I, I feel it works well being a slightly off kilter thing and the the tension it established between uh, you know, sort of establishment medicine and uh, alternative medicine uh, is is sort of interesting as far as that goes. Uh, possibly uh, again, something uh, about Jacob's you know own attitudes or something being reified by uh, by his 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 dying experience here. But yeah, beyond that, I don't know. It felt like he felt like the ham handedest character in the film too. Like yeah. you know, he really was like the magical chiropractor angel. You know, uh, you know when he's busting out of the hospital, he's a little bit more funny. He's a little bit more of a character. But the rest of the time, he's just really. I'm the laid back at peace philosopher who will tell you some truth about the nature of existence. And it's like, eh. but why? Yeah. Yeah. yeah why? And, and why are we endorsing your read on this? And he also gets like literally, you know, compared to an angel, whereas everything else in the film is notionally demons. And it could be the idea that he's just trying to let Jacob in because he is literally some sort of angel or, or guiding spirit or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's the one that lifts him up out of, you know, that the, the hell that he gets put into uh, after he gets tossed out of that car. And, you know, like the, the, that's sort of like the, the journey down into hell on, the, uh, on like the hospital gurney where eventually yeah. he ends up in that, um, where does he, yeah, he eventually ends up in that like operating room where that guy is, you know, like the, the, they have that like really circuitous conversation about him being dead. It's like, I'm not dead. Well, what are you doing here? I don't know. Well, you're here because you're dead, but I'm not dead. And Jesse's in there too, right? Yeah, she's in there as like, you know, an assisting nurse. Right. Uh, and then and then that scene ends with him getting an injection right in the middle of the forehead from a guy with no eyes. Uh, and Into his went, third eye, huh? Oh, huh? oh, oh. oh. Uh, I hadn't actually thought about that as a good point. <laughs> and, then he, and then he wakes up in the actual hospital. Um, one, thing, one, one thing actually about that sequence um, uh, that I liked was that we have him waking up from this nightmarish, obviously very nightmarish, like hell hospital being operated on and being told you're dead and whatnot thing, uh, to waking up in the hospital and being visited by his ex-wife Sarah and uh, the two boys who aren't dead. And I liked that I liked that, that came after he had the dream that uh, the, the, the apparent dream that the rest of it was a dream. Like, you know, he has a scene earlier in the film where he wakes up next to Sarah after it's been established that uh, there's this woman who's his ex-wife and he has three kids, two of them alive and all this you know that's all been established with those characters completely off camera other than a couple photographs that we see um and names mentioned you know out of context uh and then eventually he wakes up next to sarah and it's it's, it's a very effective scene because he wakes up and we've seen him in bed a number of times with jez already and then we see him in bed but then it's it's a difference sarah. It's, yeah and it's not his shitty apartment anymore it's a house yeah um and so we, so we get that, and, and he wakes up, and he wakes up that way unperturbed, apparently. And, you know, he's cold. And this is when he's in the ice bath uh, in the other narrative. He's in the ice bath with the fever. And so the fact that he's waking up cold, it's like, oh, you're cold still? Oh, well, I guess you got out of that bath okay, but now you're cold still, but your apartment looks different, and you close the window, and, oh, it's Sarah. That's weird. It's established that this is several years earlier, and that it was all just a, 
it was it, it was all just a dream, and he dreamt that he was living with Jezebel, and that Gabe had died and whatnot. And, yeah, and, yeah, it's, it sort of goes like back and forth. Is he cold because he was? Is it cold because he's having like a fantasy about being back with his family and he's waking up from a dream, whereas in an ice bath, or is he cold because he's in an ice bath but like having a vision of himself like in near a cold window? Yeah, you know, it, it could go either way, and the movie doesn't really like. Yeah, I mean, it, the movie it, substantially, in terms of just runtime attention, yeah. resolves back to the uh, six years later with Jezebel thing as right. The apparent thing and it also doesn't really work super well narratively if Gabe died back in Vietnam and the jazz stuff is happening six years later and yeah and the thing uh, is and the kids are all the same age anyway that there's there's a weird continuity thing where it they never make it clear if he take they make it clear that he gets his his PhD or his or his master's I don't know he I guess he doesn't look at his PhD diploma because he only looks at a master's diploma but you know Danny Aiello tells me he has a PhD um, you know, he gets that before going to Vietnam, uh, which actually the, the IMDb points out another inconsistency where there is no way he would have been like an enlisted soldier with a PhD because that immediately like gets you into officer class. Um, but anyway, so there was um, crap. I forgot where I was going. Oh, right. The, does he get? Does he take? He takes the job at the post office after he gets out of Vietnam because, you know, he, the, when he's talking to Louis, he's just like, uh, she's like, you know, he's like, you know, she was pissed off at you because he took six years to get a PhD and then he took a job at the post office and he's just like, well, you know, after Nam, I didn't want to think anymore. Yeah. So he clearly takes the job after, but in that fantasy he's having, he still has that job, but his kids are alive and I, you know, yeah, was he in Nam? Well, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of like a totally alternate continuity to the, to the rest of the movie in a way that's, that would be sort of consistent with it being like the real world rather than, you know, a clearly, you know, clearly a fantasy of, um, that, that's repl- that it, it's replacing what was happening to him rather than, you know, coming before or after. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which works for me. Cause I mean, that's, that's consistent with my, you know, I, I, certainly, I think pretty much anybody's had that dream experience where essentially a, a dream adjusts yeah. uh, mid-flow, and suddenly you know the variables have changed. You know, possibly because of some sort of uh, semi-lucid, like you know, rejection of where things are going. Like I've never been a lucid dream. I've never been able to like you know be like, oh, well, I know I'm dreaming, but I'm going to keep dreaming, and I'm going to dream this happens instead. And you know, the the, the notion of it strikes me as really weird because uh, it's such an odd you know idea to me but at the same time i've definitely had the experience of sort of having a dream going uh you know in a, a direction i don't like and then somehow sort of changing direction almost as my brain was like oh wait no we're fucking this up this is a this is bothersome let's do something else so the idea of that but anyway the, where i was going with all that is we we have that scene then we come back to the main narrative of of you know life as a postman jezebel gabriel's dead etc um and then we have uh, the freaky hospital scene uh, with the "Hey, you're dead" being operated on in the crazy, terrible asylum, and then he wakes up. And the in guy the with the thalidomide legs. Did you know? Oh yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Apparently, like uh, the the director for so none of the special effects in this movie were post. Uh, it was all done, you know, in scene. Yeah. And apparently, like, he had picked up, like, a book or something about, uh, about you know, just, like, thalidomide deformities, and that became a big part of, like, the creepy stuff that he shot uh, with the special effects, and you, you can sort of see that. Yeah. Which, which, which works, again, well with the theme of uh, tampering with the 
medicine and, and, and candlelight as well. So it sort of works. Uh, and sort of messing with somebody's, you know, body and, and, and brain before they're born and, and sort of like the way that this is messing with him before he's born into whatever it is there you, that, that he goes to after his death. Ah, uh, there you go. But yeah, so, so, so where I was going with all this is he wakes up in the real, you know, <laughs> quote-unquote real hospital uh, and his, uh, his ex-wife Sarah and the two older boys are there. And it's a wonderful, I felt like it was a really good moment because it was hard to know immediately uh, whether this was supposed to be consistent with the main narrative Jezebel or if this was another jump to the Sarah as his still wife and things are okay narrative. You know, and I feel like it only really resolved itself after, you know, a little bit of the scene. You know, one of the things is, you know, no Gabe is a pretty good sign that uh, this is supposed to be the, you know, Gabe is dead line of, of, of narrative uh, but also just the, the, the reaction you know and, and her dialogue makes it clear that this is okay this is supposed to be when they are no longer together but she still cares about him rather than but it could I mean I, I it could still very well just be a hallucination in in like the in the reality of the hospital scene I feel like there's nothing pointing to the fact that it's either real or not or that it's could be a hallucination or not because he hallucinates while he's talking to them and, you know, it, it's never brought up again that his wife and kids visited him. And it's, um, you know, it's again the sort of like every time he, he we, we never, if you assume that we never see Sarah for real and that every time we see her on the screen, he's, this is something that he's, you know, he's hallucinating. It, it sort of makes sense because the, the one thing that's consistent across those scenes is that she, is that they have like, you know, a bit of a, you know, the relationship isn't like, perfect but uh, but it's it's you know they, they clearly love each other and and so on and how would she have been able to find him in the hospital why would she be looking for him in the hospital yeah. you know uh jesse couldn't find him uh you know louis somehow found him but you know louis magic um and so like how is it that she would have showed up there with the kids and everything and like why would why would this be the thing that makes her like reconsider everything? Yeah. And I mean, you know, there, there, there's reasons for that. It was just like, Oh crap, he almost died. Maybe I should, you know, rethink, you know, all, you know, everything that's going on before, you know, I lose him forever again or something. But again, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, it's sort of inconsistent with, with what would actually be happening. And there's also no commenting on it again. And you know, there's the, there, there's that voice that tells him what, what does it say? It says dream on. And yeah. yeah, says, yeah. From, from off panel. Again, we get a reaction shot from him facing the camera something we don't see. And this time it's never resolved. Yeah. He just hears the voice very clearly from the other side of the bed and looks and it freaks out. Well, and, and so everything you say, I, I, I totally agree with that read. I think there's some, I guess, I guess what I would argue is the question is not so much whether or not it makes sense. Uh, Cause I think the, your, your points about how did she get there, why did she get there, et cetera, why does it not come up, uh, are, are all really solid. I think it's more of a question of, for me, whether his subjective experience of it was as uh, a hallucination or as of something actually happening. Because like, if he has recollection of the uh, experience of waking up next to Sarah and telling Rosala just to dream and visiting the boys... You know, if he remembers that in this primary narrative, he would remember that as clearly that was, you know, a, some sort of fever hallucination dream thing. Whereas if it's in the hospital, it's possible he would receive it other than the dream on voice. He would receive it entirely as uh, a thing actually happening to him, what he perceived to be, you know, his life. 
Right. There's, um, yeah, that man talking about this movie, and he's like, <laughs> well, it's the real thing that happens in the fake thing that's, the, that's real, but no, it's the fake thing that happens in the fake thing that's real. Yeah, and, yeah it's... And I mean, I guess that that's actually a pretty pretty positive aspect of this movie is in in that how difficult it is to um to what do you call it to to just really ascertain what the hell is going on, and that's a problem from him as well. Yeah, the other footing works very well with the the apparent narrative. Yeah, and that's what I don't like about the uh, conspiracy subplot and like them going to the lawyer and you know him getting all his buddies together. Is that how could you not like George Costanza being in this movie? Okay, no, that I like. <laughs> I, I enjoyed Jason Alexander being in this movie. What what I didn't like was just you know like why is all of this? Stuff, it felt like it's from some other movie, like a completely different movie, and and it's it's over as soon as it begins because they're all intimidated out of it. Which you know they're a bunch of you know, Vietnam vets, you know, they're, they've, they've seen combat. It doesn't seem like they would be easily intimidated out of something in like one conversation. So, um, yeah, no, it, it's interesting. And, and yeah, totally. It's a little bit weird. Cause yeah, it does feel like it does feel like a short bit of a lifetime television network movie, um, that just sort of snuck into this narrative. Cause it, it doesn't have all like, like that whole conspiracy thing doesn't really have, anything surreal to it that matches the otherwise sort of weird off-putting tone of things like it the weirdest thing it has going on is a little bit of government menace via mafia goons Mm -hmm. but even that's just like a sort of isolation so i I kind of agree with it It does feel like it does feel like a little bit uh shooed in there right and and the other thing is that you know um yeah, I mean, there was another the scene where he meets up with uh, the guy at the uh, the pool hall slash boxing club or wherever the hell it is they are. I, I think it's just like a boxing club that has pool tables in it because there there was a bookie there, and you know there's you know when, when uh, his friend I totally totally spacing on his name um, uh, Paul Paul yeah when Paul you know freaks out and you know like the two guys like at the pool table just sort of like you know talk to each other and then turn to him and stare and like Jake just like stares back at them and says mind your own business and one of them just like nods and just goes back to minding his own business like you get the idea that Jake is you know he's sort of like a he's kind of like a soft messed up guy and that you know he doesn't he keeps getting into situations he can't get himself out of but at no point like do you get the idea that he's weak in any way as you just just the opposite like there's numerous things pointing this movie that he's like incredibly strong-willed and strong-spirited so that why so there's really no reason for him to be like that but his the other guys that he served with to just like you know quickly you know fold under the pressure you know especially with like all of the weird shit that's going on yeah um, yeah. Well, yeah, it feels like I feel like you can sort of spin it in terms of the idea of maybe just sort of a real roller coaster bit of uh, optimism, pessimism manifesting as part of a weird dream narrative. Because like the idea that like all of a sudden, yeah, let's do this thing, and then that collapsing outright, you know, the real sense of despair there would sort of go with his, uh, you know, the, the the specific roller coaster ride he already seems to be on. But that's it's kind of a tautological defense of it. Like it, it works because you can say that, Hey, it works. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I, I, basically, I mean, I, I can see it as a sort of thing where like, this was like the brief moment where he actually had like, 
he had a uh, he had a foothold in in reality. Like everything that was going on was real. There was a real lawyer. He was taking them seriously. He contacted the government. He had a bunch of other people who believed what he believed, and then it all just like really just as quickly falls apart. So I can kind of see that being you know the whole point of it where it's just you know one phone call to you know like the the shadowy government and everything just you know falls to pieces because you know for they intimidate the guys they convince geary that you know they're crazy um and you know so that you know that all sort of falls apart and you know especially when uh the scene where he he confronts geary in the uh at the uh over the queen's courthouse i think um and you just like sort of you know smash him up against the wall. The angle on that gets really canted. Did you notice that? I did. Like oh. it tilts to almost like forty five degrees, and then it just like goes back to normal as he walks away. So um, you know, I, I could see that as being just like you know like just a brief respite from all the weird shit, and then just going right back to the weird shit. Yeah, sort of the fragility of yeah. of, of that uh, the spike of hope. Yeah, um, and you know that's sort of the thing where where you know like it. In the in the conception, like that—that's the thing about the twist. I think it, the twist is the big twist isn't that he's been dead the whole time and he's hallucinating this. I think the big twist is that all of these things that you think are evil and bad and trying to hurt him and kill him and dissuade him from you know doing this or that are doing just the opposite and just trying to convince him to give up. You know, like give up any hope. You know, give up the hope that you're you're going to go back to Sarah is what Jesse's doing. You know, give up the hope that, you know, you're going to get any answers out of the government is what, you know, like the goons are doing and, you know, all of that. And, and you feel like, you know, that they're, they're his, they're antagonists to his progress as, you know, to, to get out of like the situation that he's in. But then when you realize that it, it, it's just the opposite, they're the things that are trying to remove the, remove the uh, associations of the real world with him. So he can just, you know, so his soul can finally ascend up and just like, you know, give give it up and just stop suffering yeah exactly so I, I think that's so by that's having, like yeah, having the twist. having the class action suit fallout removes a, a attachment of uh you know expectation of continuing to make some sort of positive progress down that path and thus remain attached to the idea of some sort of you know worldly vindication for whatever had happened to him yeah like everything that hurts him is actually just like trying to help him and and i think he actually realizes that and maybe that's the point of louis it's that, you know, the, the chiropractic stuff is clearly, like, hurting him. And, he, you know, Lou even says this is going to hurt repeatedly, and it does hurt him. But he knows that that kind of hurt is good for him because he keeps going back to Louie. So it's, it's, maybe it's just that sort of thing where he doesn't realize that all of these other things trying to hurt him are actually trying to, you know, free him. So hell is chiropractic, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think I think uh, I think again at the end of the film too, when he visits uh, Sarah and the kids' apartment, and he doesn't find them there, and without the without the scene that you talked about, the deleted one with Jezebel showing up and taking demon form and twitchy guy and pulling off the hood and seeing himself and blah blah blah, uh, it plays much more uh, muted at the end. He, you get him coming to their apartment, um, and he goes upstairs, and he doesn't. You know, he calls out to them, and no one says anything, and he doesn't find them. Uh, and he looks at the pictures and he falls asleep and he wakes up and, and there's there's Gabe and takes him up the stairs into the light and, you know, dies. Uh, the idea that, yeah, like 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 the disappearance once again, like all that's left at this point is the photos and, and he's sort of, I guess at that point, let go of the idea that he'll find his old family and come back to it there. Kind of works pretty well 
as a subtle approach versus the uh, the deleted scene with the much more confrontational, let's really get down to the fucking heart of the matter thing. Another thing I want to say real quick is that the car chasing him down an alley thing, mm-hmm. so prophecy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I was so happy. I was like, yes, uh, it's probably, uh, you know, reanimated person and Christopher Walken in there driving that car. Yeah, there was uh, there was there was there was quite a number of prophecy ish things. Although you know what, speaking of prophecy, I've I've been rewatching uh, Supernatural recently, and uh, in the season where they introduced the angels, uh, one of the angel like one of the Smiten angels, uh, he, he keeps referring to the humans as monkeys, and like Castiel, who joins the cast eventually, he's just like, hey, cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh, what else? Um... I mean, I, I, I feel like we could go down and list all the crazy, weird things he sees, but, like, it's, that's kind of, it's, you know, like the skinned head of the cow in the fridge at the party, and, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. telling me he's dead. Well. Yeah, the, I, that was, I mean, wow. The, the fortune <laughs> tells it's like, oh, according to this, you're dead. It's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? I was just like, ooh, that's... You know, had I, if I didn't know that he was going to turn... that it turns out that he's dead at the end... Um, you know, at that point, I would have been. St- I would have started like significantly suspecting it to spend the rest of the movie wondering if they're going to go the obvious way and actually have me dead and have that be foreshadowing, or if they're going to go the subtle way and have that not be foreshadowing to exactly what it says, but maybe something else. Yeah. But knowing that it was foreshadowing exactly what she said, that was. I mean, it was on the one hand kind of relieving because I didn't have to wonder about it, but on the other hand, it's like, mm, come on, that's you know, you 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 could have been a little more subtle about it. Although there was. A subtle thing when she mentions that, like, his love line, you know, he's like, oh, you're divorced. I can see, like, there's this, um, there's this, you know, so, you know, cut in your love line. He's just like, oh, that's just a paper cut. And, you know, like, the paper cut is, it's temporary. It heals up. And, you know, getting back together with Sarah. Yeah, you know, yeah. Paper cut healing up. That was, I think that was, uh. I did not read that, that much into it, but that's, uh, yeah. that's a, it's a clever angle on it. Um, what was I going to say? There was, yeah, I, I don't. You know, it, it, I've always, you know, heard this movie described as a horror movie, and it, I, I don't think this is really a horror movie horror movie. I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a psychological thriller with horror as a device. Yeah, or, or, I, yeah. or a, a, a surprisingly visceral, uh, you know, uh, existentialist, uh, philosophical puzzler you know with more car chases and demons than normal yeah exactly uh, uh, yeah the 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 horror stuff was just it was it was used to to, to make a point but yeah i don't th- i didn't didn't really consider this a horror movie well, and you know it's funny because i i thought it, i thought briefly that it was a little funny we were doing this uh when it came up and it was like no but uh, i remember yeah no this I, I think it's definitely in the spirit of the kind of things we we like watching so good enough but it actually did strike me as a little bit funny when we first discussed the idea of doing this because, like, well, it's not really a horror movie, is it? It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an existentialist thriller. It's a, you know, ontological mystery. It's a meditation on death, you know. But then there's a lot of stuff in here that really, I mean, for not a horror movie, you know, because I think you could make the you could make the reasonable argument that it's just flat out not a horror movie period because it's really it doesn't have the feel of what we think of as like the horror genre. Uh, but at the same time, there's so many things in here that are so horror movie that like right. it's, you, you can't really clearly make that argument. I mean, right. the fact that you know this film really is essentially you know the source material for Silent Hill, which while not you know as much of a horror game in some sense as like maybe you know Frankenstein takes Manhattan would be, 
you know, it's still unquestionably a survival horror game. It, it very much depends on sort of the, the, the tense and surreality and, 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 and gore and whatnot of the horror genre as well. So, yeah. I don't There's know, no Frankenstein takes Manhattan. <laughs> that wouldn't even be a very good horror movie if it was. It was like a terrible Wait, example. Actually, that sounds like a comedy with Adam Costello or something. Wait, where does I, Frankenstein, take place? Hang on. You know? Do you know about that? I do not know that. There, there's. Uh, you remember those movies, uh, those underworld movies? No, I've never seen any With, of them. I mean, I well, know but you them, know all but about them, right? Yes. Like the really stylized, like vampire hunting yeah. ones. Well, same, same, uh, same style. I think same team, and just made a Frankenstein movie. And does it take place in New York? <laughs> uh, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't say. But uh, I f- wait. I'm looking at the movie poster. <laughs> No, I can't really tell where that takes place. But yeah, there may very well be a Frankenstein takes Manhattan. You'll have to watch it and, and get back to me on it. Yeah, I want to speaking of speaking of the same team making stuff. Another thing this screenwriter wrote uh, was Ghost. Yeah, and I want to bring that up because again, we're talking about this sort of notion of like Christian eschatology and, and Christian uh, afterlife symbolism. Uh, and you know, we've got uh, Jacob's you know experience of other people worrying specifically about hell. Like his his. War buddy Paul, the guy who we see blow up in his car uh, that brings everybody else back together, um, he's saying, literally, I'm going to hell. They're coming for me. And so he, at least, you know, believes in Jacob's perception of him as specifically believing in uh, actual hell, it seems like. Um, and the idea of them coming for me and they're going to take me to hell really, really, really fits with the specific imagery that shows up in Ghost, where... I don't know if you remember this or if your visions of it are clouded by the you know, potent scenes of uh, Whoopi Goldberg kissing I actually watched it maybe like a year ago. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, it's pretty fresh. fresh. Yeah, the, 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 the bad guy, like there's demons that come for the bad spirits and, you know, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, angels or light, I don't remember exactly. But I definitely remember the, the demons coming for the bad spirits after they die thing and that's what happens to the bad guy at the end of the movie and whatnot. And it seems like that would have fit really naturally in Paul's sort of conception of hell and them coming for me. Maybe if the script had been taken a little bit more at face value as the guy had written it, it would have looked a little bit more like specifically the symbolism of Ghost, which I don't think would have been a good thing for the film, but it, it, there's a certain potential for, I don't know, thematic and narrative continuity there between the two films that I would not have thought about if I did not know specifically that that's the guy who wrote this. Um, just, but just, yeah, just another, just another thing that's jumping out at me about the metaphysics of the whole thing. What if one of those, one of his two kids turns into Patrick Swayze from Ghost. Oh, that's probably what it is. Ghost is a sequel to this film. I think we've, we've saw that. One, like, Eli turns into Patrick Swayze's yeah. character. He uh, changes his name and uh, grows his hair out a little bit and then goes and gets killed uh, after he starts a roadhouse. Or, or he doesn't start it, but he yeah. uh, you know, reforms it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just assume every Patrick Swayze character is the same guy, just, you know, living different lives. Yep. Uh... Another Seinfeld thing, Michael, Michael, the guy who was the LSD cook, last name uh-huh. Newman. So last name what? Newman. Newman. Uh, so between Costanza and Newman, I feel like, uh, <laughs> you know, we're really there. Uh, gosh, what else? Um, oh, lots of little details. I, mean, I really, I, I really liked the look of the descent into the hell asylum yeah. thing. I mean, that was all, and partly because I really do like the, the aesthetic of the Silent Hill uh, series. Uh, and so it was like this is it was like we really kind of like I, I don't think I played I may not have played Silent Hill at all when I saw this the first time 
So like it did not jump out to me just how fucking clearly this is like, oh my God, this is like literally concept art for the, the series. Um, which this, this, this film and Kindergarten Cop, the two films that made Silent Hill possible. Did, you, did I ever tell you about that? No. Uh, so someone went looking at screenshots from uh, the original Silent Hill game uh, and also uh, had watched Kindergarten Cop recently, apparently. And so they made the connection. There's a bunch of like, bits of set dressing, like nothing thematically, obviously, in the, in the game, but a bunch of bits of set dressing, like the, the elementary school that they shot... Uh, kindergarten cop out apparently was the source material for some of the exteriors and interiors. There's even the same number on a school bus at one point as appears incidentally in the film. Like, so it clearly, like, uh, possibly just someone in Japan was like, oh, I need, uh, I need to come up with some props and some background art uh, for this game level I'm laying out. I should watch something uh, set in America and watch kindergarten. I was like, hey, that school bus is pretty great. Yeah, that, uh, that nurse's office is pretty great. I don't know. I it's it's nuts. I'll try and remember to track down the pieces. But yeah, so that's that's that that's what Silent Hill is. It's what you get when you combine Jacob's Ladder with the uh, Kindergarten Cop. Hmm. Uh, the thing on the evil nurse's head is it's not a all the way. <laughs> I don't know. Ernest uh, saves Christmas. Uh, Ringu. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ringu all the way. Um... <laughs> What else? Oh God! You know, and then we we mentioned Louis raising him out of sort of the hell hospital, but he also literally stands him up after doing his miracle chiropractic there. Like in Uh, that uh, the the Gustave Doré engraving that he looks at in the um, in that copy of the Inferno, where you see one of those guys pulling one of those other guys out of the thing. Oh yeah, I didn't even make that connection. and then, uh, so he literally successfully makes the lame walk. It's you couldn't get more Jesus figure if you tried. And then cast it off with a hallelujah. Even, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I still don't know how to feel. Like. I did. Jake's looking through his stuff at one point, and he looks mm-hmm. at among other things. You mentioned he was looking at his like master's certificate. He also mm-hmm. looks at his honorable discharge, and it's got you know the nice uh, calligraphic stuff. If you get a dishonorable discharge from the army, do they still give you a nicely calligraphic certificate, or do they just type up a year out? I mean, do they do they give you the like? We want you to know that we really care about the presentation of telling you that we're kicking you out because you suck. Yeah, I I, I wonder because they I know they don't drum you out, but yeah, I'm I'm googling it now. Uh, discharge under other than honorable conditions. Oh, it's very stern looking. It's definitely not. Uh, Oh, wait, no. So that's the discharge under other than honorable conditions. And then there's, I said, I'm looking at a dishonorable discharge one. And, ooh, that one looks really, really just, that. that's just a government form that somebody filled out on a typewriter. They printed it in Comic Sans. Yeah. <laughs> Rub it in. Salt in the wound. Yeah. Also, uh, I, I like that. So apparently Jake and I graduated from the same college. Oh, and yeah. I, I, I like that, I guess, even back then they didn't cite your major on your diploma. <laughs> Because my diploma just says that I've got, you know, a Bachelor of the Arts, and that's it. And what? Yeah, you pick. Whatever. We get, a, we get a shot of the cabbie's name when he's taking the cab uh, near the end of the film to uh, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah's uh, house, apparently. Uh, and it's it, close-up Garzero, comma, A. And I didn't know if there was any sort of, like, uh, meaning that I missed on Garzero or if it's just a random cabbie's name. Um, but I, I mean, it's not. Like, oh, of course, so you know. that's uh, that. That's sort of out of the ordinary. Yeah, <laughs> I told you like literally the 
two times that I have seen like white cab drivers in New York City, they have both been cops. Huh. Yeah. It's 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 I mean, I maybe it was just more common back then, but now it's it's uh yeah. I don't I I have no comment on that at all, but um yeah, that 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 actually does strike me as a little strange that he would have like an Italian last name. Yeah. Uh, also, when, when it gets to uh, uh, the door of Sarah's house, uh, Sam, the doorman, you know, recognizes. Oh. Hey, how you doing? And he says, "Do you want some help? I can call upstairs." Which felt a little bit like, you know, you know, help from help from above. It, it may have been completely but like he's got it somebody been, upstairs looking out yeah, for him. Yeah, exactly. Like Black you know, says. Yeah, exactly. So you know, uh, I just thought that was. What was the name of the angel in um? Uh, Jimmy Stewart, Christmas, Clarence, uh, Clarence, Clarence. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't Sam. Not Clarence. Not no. Yeah. Maybe Although Sam, Sam, Samuel, Samuel. You know, there's some. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Are there any names in this movie that are unambiguously not biblical? Louis, Louis. I don't. I don't remember a Louis in the Bible. I yeah, there was that. no Louis. Um, Paul is New Testament, which was uh, George. Was Saint George. Um, let's just look up on IMDb. I, I think <laughs> the uh, the major characters all had biblical names. Um, and then there was yeah, I mean there's uh, the Rod, Jerry, Doug, Elsa. Uh, yeah, there was a bunch of secondary characters that didn't have biblical names, but all the main ones yeah. for we did. And all of the main and all of they all had uh, Old Testament names. Uh, and Lupa Louis, uh, King Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, the sun the god, sun god. Uh, you know, lights. Yeah, maybe. Although then that makes me want to say lightbringer, which then we go Satan. But then, hey, if all the other angels that are helping you are actually seeming like demons that are hurting you, then the angel or or, or, or the kind soul that is helping you that you can actually, for whatever reason, sense is helping you. If you didn't think it was helping you, wouldn't he seem like you know a demon as well? So Louis could have been you know Louis Lucifer, uh, King. Louis the Fourteenth, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you know, if, if Louis the Fourteenth ever dressed up as Satan for a, a costume bash, I bet he really knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Uh, so let's assume that if Jacob had not been on a good spiritual valence with Louis, he would have looked like a French aristocrat dressed up as Satan. You know, sequined red jumpsuit, pitchfork with rubies for the the, the, the tips, etc. That's probably. That's probably what we would have seen in the deleted scene if they hadn't accidentally forgot to put it on the DVD for you. I mean, a French aristocrat dressed up as Satan just sounds like what my wife has told me about going to art school and, and seeing uh, like all of the costume parties there were just like these incredibly elaborate, just really intense events. And I'm, I'm sure that must have been one of those things at that party. Yeah. Um, there's a... Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at on IMDb at the uh, at the goofs, and most of them just have something to do with something being like one or two years off, 1975 or 1971. I'm just like, mm, come on. Yeah, well, people are bored, and know a lot about car models. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that seems like a dangerous thing if you're doing a period piece. You really got to be careful because there's like plenty of car people who can be like, oh wait a second, but that was the '77 model, man. You can tell because. Yeah. The chrome's different. Um, oh, apparently the, the the person that says "dream on" is that uh, is is that hell doctor. 
Oh, okay. the, 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 they credit him as evil doctor. Um, apparently, that's who said that's who's saying dream on. I see. But you know, that's that's yeah. Um, I'm trying to see my notes here. There was. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sad this movie did not feature uh, either one of the other Jacob's Ladders, because you think you'd, you'd get that in there somewhere, like little Cat's Cradle thing, or the... Uh, or the wire or thing, the, yeah. Yeah. But nope, we were denied. Yep. Which, see, um, see it, it's, it's almost a shame, because they could have done a really, really ham-handed recurring cut to a Jacob's Ladder working, and then working less well and less well, and then, you know, just, just sputtering and just not... Yeah. Maybe it could have been like that scene in Eraserhead where they go to like the eraser factory and there's just a scene where Jacob just like wakes up for a second and there's a giant electrical Jacob's ladder and then he, he nods and then it just cuts back to whatever. Yep. Yeah, that's that, interesting actually. Angela specifically mentioned uh, uh, the feel of Eraserhead being you know, sort of like part of what this was making her think of as we were watching it. Uh, something about that, that marrying of the surreality with the... Uh, oftentimes just very sort of slow-paced banality of just an everyday existence sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, so the the overhead light recurring imagery while he's on his back, Louis's lamp is the same lamp yeah, as... Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I think that's like one. literally the same light as we see in the yeah. final uh, sort of pullback shot. Um, yeah. Was there a was the sun in the sky in the Santa scene? I don't remember that or not. I mean, it was a uh, really explicit so, again leaning over. Yeah, the uh, glasses guy looking him directly in the face thing, and you know that. So I, I again like this the, the moderate face blindness that I have made parts of this movie very difficult because there's a lot of guys with seventies haircut and big glasses and like sort of the same face as Tim Robbins. And I was just like, wait, is that the same actor? No, but wait, maybe it's the same actor as that other guy. And I spent like a bunch of the movie doing that. And I assume it was sort of intentional to have a bunch of them look similar, but it was too similar for me. But I mean, that's that's, that's my problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fine with faces and I still found it a little bit hard at times, partly because like the crew, we don't see a whole lot of the, the... the Vietnam crew and there's enough of them that's it's hard to be sure that you're not forgetting because like the, the one of the twitchy guys we see is like sort of a mullety handlebar mustache and, and mullety dude mm-hmm. who shows up a couple times to sort of do the head twitchy thing in the background and I didn't recognize him from anywhere else in the film I, I thought he was in his platoon but then it turned out to be another guy that looked kind of like him but maybe if he shaved or something yeah yeah and that's the thing if six years go by and people have shaved and whatnot it's, so it's I found that a little bit confusing too yeah. Um. Yeah, that party looked fun <laughs> until the demons and everything. Yeah. Uh, that was a fun People having a good time, you know. Yeah. People reading palms. Everybody's hitting on him for some reason. I mean, but it is it is Tim Robbins. Uh, that's the actor's name, right? <laughs> what if you just dream in his name? What if what this is all actually? What this entire podcast is actually the dying experience of some guy who's not named Tim Robbins who always wanted to be named Tim Robbins, but he's upset that there's an actor named Tim Robbins. And so imagine there was a film starring Tim Robbins, but it's actually him secretly under that twitchy mask and he's trying to get out. I think that's the plot of uh, Jacob's yeah. Ladder too. And the deleted scenes, the deleted scenes on the DVD, those are memories that, that he's trying to let go of that we're not letting him let go of because we're not helpful demons. Man, I, now you know what? Now I want a copy of this DVD just to see if like they they themed like the deleted scene like introductions in any way as just like lost memories because 
You know, I, 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 who designs DVDs or like Blu-rays? Who designs like the interface on that? Because that seems like a fun job. You know, I, I, I am of two minds. But like on the one hand, I am amused by some of the things people try and pull off. But on the other hand, DVD and Blu-ray menu interfaces are like the worst fucking medium to work. In. Yeah, it's like it's like if you if you decided you wanted to, you know, make fine art and all you could use was you know Excel. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you could actually create, you know, workable visual landscapes in Excel, but why the fuck would you want to? Uh, but also, again, it seems to be getting longer on Blu-ray. Like, I got the uh, Quentin Tarantino, like, Blu-ray box set, um, and I popped in Inglorious Bastards, and there was, like, a solid five minutes of just, like, intro shit between... Um, between popping the, the, the movie in and actually being able to start the movie. And, like, even on VHS, at least you could fast-forward through yeah. it. But now it's just like, come on. Yeah, I, I've watched enough, uh, few enough actual DVDs in the last few years uh, that I've been mostly amused by that stuff when starting up uh, the occasional, like, rented thing for one of the movies we're watching. Because yeah, I've done that, like, you know, once a month maybe or so. Mm. Uh, in the last few months and so I'm like it's kind of like watching TV like I'm amused by the commercials for the first time you know you know, you know, for the first hour or so I'm actually amused by commercials because they're all new and I haven't yeah. seen what shit people are getting up in new commercials lately and then it wears out real quick but uh, but yeah it is sort of surprising how annoying it is if you aren't in the mood to be like entertained by annoyance uh yeah with these fucking things. Yeah, about. it was, um, I think, like, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, like, on, on, on TV shows, there would occasionally be a meta moment where somebody would complain about commercials insulting their intelligence, and as a kid, I watched, like, six hours of television a day. Uh, surprise. Um, and, and I was just like, oh, I don't see what the point is about people minding commercials so much, and then, like, when I moved out of my mom's house when I was 18 or 19, um, and I no longer lived anywhere that had a television that was actually hooked up to the, to the airwaves. It was always, you know, just somebody's computer or DVD player or, or something. And then I didn't watch commercials for the longest time. And then like any time I would be somewhere where there would be a TV, um, and you know, like the, somebody would turn on and there'd be a TV show and there'd be like commercials. I'm like, wait a second. First they're interrupting my show and they're interrupting my show to show this. The, 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 it's terrible. <laughs> and then like, I can't watch commercials anymore. I end up yelling at the television like an old person. Yep. Maybe I am an old person. Or maybe this whole thing is your dying dream of not being, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll stop. Um, <laughs> No, you won't. <laughs> I'll stop for now. I'll stop for the next uh, five minutes or so. I'm uh, sorry implies regret. <laughs> well, it's 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 a uh, it's a polite thing to say. It's all you know. It's a social nicety. Uh, what? <laughs> and it's it's got to be hard to be a full-on sociopath. All the work you have to do to sort of you know fake that stuff. Uh, I'm just lazy. I'm just lazy and inconsiderate. So. If I stop and think about it, I'm like, oh, I guess that was kind of a closely uh, dickish thing for me to do. And, and I actually feel bad about it. It's just, I have to stop and, you know, make the effort because, you know. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I should save some uh, uh, self-deprecation uh, for future episodes. So do you have anything else you want to <laughs> cover here or should we wrap this up? Um I liked the gore effects during the war scenes. Yeah, they were pretty good. There was a good a dangling, blown to pieces leg. Yeah, and like well. the guy being dragged. Yeah, that was that was pretty. That was pretty good. Oh, you know what? Here, okay, well, last thing. 
Was it supposed to be obvious from the beginning of the movie that they were fighting each other? Because there were no Viet Cong, and it looked like their platoon was being strafed by a helicopter. And from what I remember, the Viet Cong did not have helicopters. I thought the helicopter was weird. Like, it was really unambiguous. It seemed like maybe the helicopter was supposed to be taken as a defensive unit that came in to help them out once it turned out that crazy shit was going down. Um, it was not obvious what was going on in the attack at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Like, I, there, was I did no not, v, there was no Viet Cong yes, anywhere. Yes, like, I, did, I, I, I did not get the clear picture that there were actually Viet Cong there attacking them, but at the same time, you know, going in without specifically looking for that, because I had forgotten that aspect of it. Like, I'd forgotten the idea that they were dosed to fight each other. I just remember that there was some drug stuff in general. So watching, I was like, this is a this is an oddly opaque battle scene, but maybe they're going for the madness of war and these the, the, the sudden confusion and they're being attacked from the bush so you can't see him because they're in the bush you know what do you do so it was not immediately clear to me that something was wrong there but it did seem a little bit odd it seemed sort of obliquely shot and the helicopter did really make me be like wait are they supposed to be being attacked by the helicopter or because that doesn't make sense because that yeah. seems like a, a u.s army helicopter so yeah so i thought it was a little it, it was odd certainly it struck me Vietnam War buffs listening to this podcast. Let us know if the Viet Cong had helicopters, I guess. Yep. Maybe they stole it. Well, I mean, they would have just been given it by the Soviets. Well, and also in, in the actual what happened situation there with them attacking each other, the helicopter could have been basically an observational vehicle because it'd be sort of weird to drug them up and then just shoot them from a helicopter. It's not a very good experiment at that point, but... Uh, <laughs> But hanging around and, and, and watching. Well, I thought it, I, I, I thought it was that, you know, like the guys in the helicopter were... Because, I mean, a platoon has more than like seven people in it, right? Probably. I, I don't know how I, war I, works. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know unit sizes at all, I think. Uh, I mean, I, a platoon would be like 20 people or something, but I'm not sure. Yeah, so maybe that was like the rest of their platoon coming back, all tripping out. And these guys were like the... Uh, the scouts and they were you know like up ahead or they were in a certain part and like that's you know they thought that they're you know they thought that they had stumbled on the bad guys they thought the bad guys were coming for them and you know like that that's how that happened and it was just you know the confusion so yeah yeah, yeah. I thought that they were all sort of uh, infected or, or just you know like climbing the ladder yeah that's what you call it now it's climbing the ladder how about that yeah 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 <laughs> I was. I, I, I will say briefly. I sort of like let let out a little bit of a uh, when we got to the part where he explained that the drug was called the ladder because it just felt like I don't really need you to say the that's name of the, the name film of the movie in the film. Like this one didn't really need that. You know, it's a, it could just be left as you know a metaphorical ambiguity. Like let's try and figure out what the ladder is on our own. You know, but what do you do? Anyway, I think that's about it for this one. As usual, we implore you to uh, go to iTunes and rate and review if you haven't already, since it helps with uh, visibility. Uh, check out the Facebook group. Uh, yep. For we follow us on uh, follow us on Tumblr, where uh, yeah, and I think we've been I think we're doing all right about telling people what movies coming up next. I think this week we uh, what was it like two days ago that yeah I, we were we were a little foot draggy about it, yeah. but, uh, but still it's a, it's a good principle and it's working out well in yeah. general. I think. It's nice to give people heads up. So yeah, keep and, an eye um, out and we'll tell you what we're going to yeah, watch next. Somebody suggested uh, VHS 2 and I think we should probably take some time before doing another, you know, sequel again. But it's it's uh, it's definitely on our, you know, giant uh, list of, of movies people suggest and movies we're considering. So, yeah, I'd be happy to uh, watch it at some point. Probably not. Yeah, the, everybody's, the yeah, just, everybody's suggestions are, are noted in one way or another. Yeah. So feel free to keep making those. Yeah, um, very much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, all right. So uh, 
Do you have anything left? No, I, th- I think that's about it. I, got, I, I passed, there's a fencing shop in town here. Uh, Wait, I, for I, like I, fences or for like, you know, like, like fencing, a pace? Like and, like, 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 yeah, pace, like, 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 like term and fencing. Um, uh, it's a, a fencing shop slash school. And uh, they have a picture that I'll, I'll grab next time I'm walking past. I just didn't have my phone at the time of a guy wearing an old school fencing mask. And it really looks like a, like a partway uh, makeup prop for Pinhead. Just yeah. the grid works out perfectly. So I'll, so I'll look forward to that next time. I'll find a picture of that and post it on the blog or something. But uh, I'm not, I'm good. I just needed to make sure we kill the momentum on a clean ending there because I can't just apparently just stop a podcast like a normal person. Yeah, I mean, the, the mo- momentum's not great, so you should probably cut this out mid-sentence <laughs> for purposes. That, that sounds like a really good idea. Why don't I, uh, you know... I, see, I can't even. I can't even fake a sentence first cut off. I, I just. It. It. It physically. I recoil. It's like a gag reflex. Like I had to just keep talking. Uh, so I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> See you later, everybody. See you in a fortnight. <laughs>